Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, joins the show to give us an update on the COVID-19 battle. Andrew Goldberg does his weekly segment on employment issues during the pandemic. On the docket today, can an employer legally fire an employee who engages in what they consider to be inappropriate activity outside of the workplace? We'll give you the answer to that. And could we see more signs stating no mask, no service outside of local businesses? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We caused quite a firestorm or controversy, I guess, the other day. We started talking about mask or no mask. Uh, anybody who's been out to any of the stores where they have gone shopping or any public place right now, I'm hearing story after story about people that are, are just not wearing any protection at all. No gloves, no masks, no nothing else. It's just this is business as usual, as, I guess, as far as they're concerned. But it's not business as usual. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really what we can down here. And and I know some people were kind of irked by the uh, the opinion that I I took on that. But uh, I, I think it's being shared by some people that are pretty decent experts on this, and they seem to know what they're talking about. And uh, well, I, I mean, this is what we you know we do. I mean, we, we're supposed to listen to the people that are the experts in situations like this. Uh, Professor Chase uh, from McMaster Medical Center actually weighed on this a little while ago, and this is a rather interesting opinion. Here's what she had to say. There's some um, studies from the 60s and 70s looking at uh, cloth masks, which were widely used in hospitals at the time because we didn't have disposable masks then. And those masks uh, protected the environment. They protected both the air and the surfaces from the secretions of the wearer. Well, and we're still doing it. Uh, uh, Professor Catherine Chase from McMaster University about that. Let's ask our next guest about this. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, of course, is the Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton and, and a member of the uh, the Emergency Task Force that's been dealing with uh, the issues here in the city. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us this afternoon, or this morning. Good morning, Bill. It's glad to be here. But let me if we start right off with that, about the mask wearing. Uh, I, I had to go out a little bit yesterday. I had a dental appointment, so I was kind of out in a boat for a while, and I was uh, alarmed. Uh, as I drove by some of the shopping areas, uh, the number of people that are going in and out of stores not wearing any protection at all. Now, I understand that uh, the official word here is masks are recommended. Uh, it's not mandated at this stage, but maybe you could talk to us about the benefit of actually wearing a mask if you're going to go out in public. Absolutely, and I think we have to also put masks into context. And so when we're talking about um, infection control in this sort of situation, we use what's called a hierarchy of control. So there's the things that really work the best are the things that mean there's no exposure at all. And so physical distancing is the, the, really the, the mainstay of control that we want to have. So for you and I, that means working from home as much as possible. Um, you know, for some people, it means just staying six feet apart um, in the settings they're in. But anywhere where we can't maintain that sort of physical distancing, then that's when the masks really come into play. And so, you know, when we're out and about for a walk and we're doing all those things, there's, there's really no need for them. But if we're in places where we can't maintain that distance, those masks really are recommended. And so it's been, it's been very interesting. You had um, the, the uh, physician on from McMaster hey, Professor uh, Chase, talking yes. about those. And uh, she had said about how, you know, we used to only have cloth masks. That's what yeah. we had um, when we were in the ORs and those sorts of things back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, and the, the studies that are looking at them again are finding that a cloth mask is made of two layers of tightly woven fabric. So when you think about a good set of sheets or, um, you know, a tightly woven T-shirt, if you have two layers of that, it may be as effective as a, as a surgical mask that we use today. And so what it's really doing, as she pointed out, is stopping somebody who's sick from spreading those droplets. Turns out when we talk, 
there's all the fine spray of droplets that comes out. And the louder we talk or we sing, the more of those that come forward. So those masks really do do a good job at stopping the, that that from happening. And so I love the uh, the graphic that Toronto first created, which is, uh, you know, my mask protects you, your mask protects me. Um, it may be that it provides some protection from other people um, in that way, but the main job it does is to stop anybody who's sick and doesn't know know it yet from uh, spreading that virus to others. So, yeah, absolutely, we recommend them um, in situations where you can't do that first thing that is really most important, which is the physical distancing. And it's not just sneezing or coughing. I mean, obviously, that's going to project to our, our droplets around, uh, which I guess is why they initially said the six-foot uh, distance thing. But I've seen reports, doctor, where this can actually, they say it can actually go 15, 20 feet, depending on, you know, if it's a sneeze or something like that. It's all over the place. So this is this is really common sense. Well, it, it's interesting because there are there have been some studies that that shows that happen sometimes, and we do know that the more that we you know we talk loudly, as I was saying, or we're singing, the more comes forward. But there haven't been good studies to show that that actually the you know anything that goes any further than that six feet really is infectious. You know, there's not enough particles at that sort of piece. So that six feet distancing is still the stuff that the the mainstay of the studies are saying to stick by. Um, but those masks, if we're in a, a store where we can't, you know, maintain that kind of distancing, a smaller store or, or you're going into a place that's a little bit more crowded, you know, I had to go out and about and do some essential errands for, for our place on the weekend. And, and, you know, some places were more crowded than others. Some were letting in more than others. And that's the kind of situation where, yeah, you'd like to have the mask on. That's going to um, protect other people if you just don't know it yet that you've gotten the virus and it's going to uh, give you some protection as well. A couple of other things I want to get to, and then we, I want to get into some stats here because there's uh, some, some good news about the Hamilton area that we, we want to touch on. Uh, but we had a lot of controversy again this past weekend about open spaces. I mean, it's a beautiful day again today. Uh, it looks like it's going to be nice through, through the weekend. People want to go out and about, and who, you know, who can blame them? It got up at 5 o'clock this morning. There was my neighbor doing his thing around this, this, the block here just to try to get in shape and get started before he had to go into work. And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but a lot of people were upset, especially in Toronto, but even here in Hamilton at some of the outdoor facilities, uh, saying, look, it's, what's the big deal? Uh, you know, and they're not wearing protection and they're staying close. And, the, and I know that there are studies that you've talked to us about, doctor, that say, yeah, the chances of, of conveying this outside is, is significantly less. It's indoor stuff. But if you're outside with somebody for a long period of time, sitting there for an hour, hour and a half, you're at risk, aren't you? I mean, if, if you can sit in, you know, down on the waterfront at the Bay Park, you can sit at Tim Horton Field. You're not supposed to do that. We're not there yet, are we? No, we're not. You know, we absolutely are there in terms of getting out and about. Just yeah, sure. Said, you know, we need people to be out and about and doing the things that are good for both their physical and mental health and and enjoying the the weather that we now have upon us. But the physical distancing remained absolutely the core of this. And as we go forward, people have to remember that the the hygiene measures in terms of covering your cough, covering your sneeze, keeping your distance, you know, washing your hands off and not touching your face, your hands to your face, those are absolutely key. And so while it's great to go out and enjoy, and if you're sitting there with your partner, your friend, you know, that you uh, that you spend time with all the time, a roommate or somebody like that, fine. Like that's, that's your household member. Mm-hmm. But to be getting together in, and having more, you know, people in that space is not something that we should be doing. And so we, we can't forget that as we go forward. I know as we move to this next stage where we're trying to reopen, you know, you often hear me say that we've been training for this. 
yeah. for two or three months, and we need to use the training that we have given, use the lessons we've been we've been given. We're not going back. We're not going back to where we were and doing things as we did. And so we have to relearn, perhaps in this new weather. You know, being back outside, be reminded that those those mainstays have to stay in place. And so if you go up to a a walking trail and it's busy, don't go. Go find somewhere else. You go up to a place where. Yep, there's people that are that are sitting on the grass enjoying the sun, having their lunch, and there's too many of them. You're going to have to go find somewhere else. You know, we're fortunate to live. We're not in Toronto where, you know, the population density is really high and the green space is a much higher premium. We're here in a place where, you know, for many of us, we can travel somewhere else and go find uh, somewhere that's either a little further afield or, you know, somewhere that's got less people in it. And so we need to make sure we do that. Which slides us into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, and that, of course, is uh, community transmission. One of the real concerns we've got here about you know transmitting the disease from one to another. You may not even know that you're carrying it. You may be asymptomatic, as you've told us about. Uh, I know you've done some work on this, you and your staff, Doctor, and uh, the, the rate of community transmission here in the Hamilton area is actually considerably lower. It's about almost half of what the provincial average is, isn't it? That's true. That's absolutely true. You know, and we've seen that the provincial averages are really driven by places like Toronto, where yeah. they are having higher levels of community transmission. And that may just be a function of, of just the sheer numbers of cases that they're having to follow up as well. For us here in Hamilton, it's about a quarter of our cases um, where we're not able to find the person that they got it from. And we're definitely seeing more clusters related to households. And then again, of course, the larger outbreaks that have happened and so those have been driving more of our cases. In other places, if you look at Ontario as a whole, it's about two-thirds of cases that are, are community transmission. And so, you know, that's much more worrisome. It's certainly going to be one of the key statistics, one of the key measures that we're looking at as we move forward. If we're seeing that number creep up here in Hamilton where, you know, we're not able to find the links between cases, then that's a, a worry for us that we are, we've gone too far, that we're, you know, not able to find those, that people aren't following the measures um, and so we'll be watching that definitely very closely as we move forward. It's it's good news, but I mean, I guess you know if you start peeling back some of the layers here, the reason why the number is is I, I think continually low here is a lot of us, notwithstanding the fact that you know we've just seen some people that don't listen to this, are, are doing that. They they they're doing the the physical distancing that they're supposed to do or the isolation, etc. I think by and large you've done a pretty good job. I think we're getting a little tired of it now, and a few people may be bending the rules a little bit, but I, I think that that. That number you just talked to us about here, about only 26% of uh, transmission rates here in this community, is, is indicative of the fact that, by and large, we have been following the rules, as you and, and other, uh, of course, uh, ministers and, and doctors have talked to us about over the last couple of months. That's right. You know, that's what we find, you know, here in Hamilton, and, and very thankful for it. You know, the work that people have done in following those rules and, um, you know, making transmission be reduced and all of those sorts of things has been absolutely fabulous. And that's why, you know, as we go to this next stage, we need to remember what we learned and carry it forward and be cautious as we open up and say, okay, we've got to continue to do this. We've got to monitor and watch. We need to go slow um, as we go forward to make sure that everybody's able to maintain that. And, you know, don't give up. There's still, you know, new ways to enjoy and all those sorts of things, but, it's really in all of our hands, and it continue, It has been for the last many months, and it continues to be, and it's the way that we all decide to do this. If we decide to continue to follow that guidance, that we'll be able to open up more. 
I, I know you've got a meeting to go to, but I got one other point I want to ask you. you as I was listening to your answer there, uh, we've heard about the second wave, and, and some are suggesting this is inevitable. Something's going to happen. They kept talking about maybe uh, fall and into the winter, but a rather ominous warning from our, our good friend Dr. Fauci the other day. I, I was watching one of his uh, uh, announcements, and he said, "Look, he says if you guys don't pay, play by the rules, that second wave could be in another month." Uh, he says it's really up to us how we want to do this as to whether or not we're going to have a second wave, how severe it's going to be, and, and when it's going to happen. Exactly, because this virus doesn't look like influenza. You know, From what we know about it so far, it's not weather and climate that seems to make a difference in terms of its spread, as is what happens with flu and why it's flu seasonal. This virus seems to be able to spread any time of the year. So it really is up to us in what we do. And if we go forward and try to go back to our old ways of doing things, we're going to have our second wave sooner. If we go forward and are very, you know, sensible about what we do and we, we practice all those really important things, our respiratory hygiene, all of the physical distancing, staying home when you're sick, going to get a test done as soon as you think you might have some symptoms, those are all so important and will help us to, to be able to move forward, open our economy back up and stay safe. Doctor, I know you've got a, a, another conference uh, in mere moments, so I'm going to let you go at this stage. Thank you, as always, for the, the time today. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Take care and stay healthy. Thanks, Bill. You too. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, of course, Hamilton's uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health here for the city. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You back to work yet? Some of us are. You know, I, I understand the, the Premier has extended the, uh, the emergency measures that he's put in place until uh, at least June the 9th. So uh, places like restaurants and some of the places that are remaining closed right now are going to stay closed for at least another week or two. Uh, we'll keep you updated on what's going on. But for those that are going back to work, uh, I'm, I'm hearing an awful lot from people that are having some problems about some of the terms of employment. And a lot of it might just be confusion because, you know, the federal government has announced a number of different programs, the CERB program and so many other things, uh, to try to top up wages and salaries, to try to help renters, and on and on and on. Uh, and I guess it's, it's pretty difficult to muddle through some of this stuff, which is why you need professional advice a lot of the time, uh, which is why our next guest is uh, always a welcome guest uh, when we get him on here on Wednesdays. Andrew Goldberg is an employment lawyer and an associate at Sanfiro to Market LLP, uh, employmentlawyer.ca, by the way, is a webpage. It's got some great information on there. Andrew, how are you doing this week? Are we there, Andrew? Oh, I'm not hearing Andrew. He uh, always provides some great advice. And by the way, I've, I've got a number of emails that we're going to get to in just a couple of seconds here, too. Hello. Because, uh, there's Andrew. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing today? Good. Good. Oh, you're cutting out on me again. Okay. Can you hear me now? Now I can hear you. Yeah, sorry about that. I don't know what's going on here. Technological work from home. <laughs> well, when you get a, a lawyer and a broadcaster together, don't expect technical expertise, but expertise nonetheless in other fields, uh, including, of course, in employment law. Uh, right off the bat, i got to start off with a, 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 this is an email I got just literally 20 minutes ago, I assume in anticipation of you uh, joining us today, Andrew, uh, from Tom in Caledonia, Ontario, who says, look at uh, wanted to advise you that uh, some employers and small businesses and mediums are telling employees if you want your job back, you have to take less money. And he says, I'm one of those people. He says, my employer demanded that I take a $9 per hour cut in pay and go hourly versus a salaried position. EI, he says, confirmed that I would be unable to collect benefits if I'd been called for an hour of work and declined. So he says, what choice do I have here? Employment Standards says that I do have a constructive dismissal problem here and, and could actually pursue that. But because I've turned down work, I'm not going to get EI in the meantime. That's, that's what he was being told anyway. Now, I, I think this is the exception rather than the rule, but this is, uh, it just doesn't sound right. 
Yeah, that's a that's an extremely rough situation. I mean, 100 um, percent that individual when recalled to work, you have the rights to the same job that you left. So, you know, obviously nine dollar pay cut is significant. I'm not sure what his or her uh, pay was originally before the pay cut. But, you know, even at forty dollars an hour, theoretically, nine dollars is a decent cut. No kidding. Um, so, you know, what I'd recommend to that person is, you know, if they want to return to work, canvas with the employer, um, whether that that pay cut can be temporary and not a permanent thing. If that's something that's necessary, if the employer says, listen, this is necessary, this is what we need to do to get by, uh, 100%, I think they should canvas whether it can be temporary. There's no reason that they should agree to have that be a permanent term going forward. And as you said, uh, you know, the, such a pay cut could easily amount to a constructive dismissal and that person could pursue a severance package. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, the problems with EI are, are numerous. I know that you deal with that on a pretty consistent basis uh, about the rules and regulations and how they apply. But uh, uh, I, I guess what Tom's looking for, and I guess what a lot of people who might be in the same position is looking for, is, is a little bit of leeway from EI to say, look, at this, these are different times and, and can we just cut some people some slack here? Yeah, I would recommend uh, that that person call EI back and try to speak to another uh, individual there to see if that's the case. That seems uh, <clears throat> a bit of an interesting outcome, but but it's certainly something that might be resolved with the assistance of an employment lawyer if they can work with the company to issue a record of employment as part of a terms of settlement to have a record of employment issued such that that person can remain on EI. But uh, that is a, a particularly frustrating situation because on one hand, they're being told by the Ministry of Labor, you might have legal recourse as a constructive dismissal. But on the other hand, we can't give you EI in the meantime. So it's, it's a very mixed message there, certainly. Now, he, Tom does not identify who the employer is here, uh, but does say it's a multi-million dollar company. So this is, as a matter of fact, they actually got an interest-free loan from the government for forty grand. So uh, there's some something hanky-panky going on here. So, uh, Tom, there's the advice. Uh, call them again and see what you can do and do some, some negotiating, if at all possible, uh, and good luck with that. Lots of other stuff going on here, too, uh, about employment, and uh, uh, we're hearing an awful lot of stories about, uh, well, you mentioned, this, this, of course, with the, the Hudson Bay Company. We talked about that over a couple of uh, shows now uh, a little while back about how they were actually trying to you know pull a fast one here from the financial standpoint. And we understand uh, that employers have got a rough time of it, too. I mean, a lot of them have had their doors shut, and there hasn't been money coming in in a lot of these situations. So the, you know, everybody needs a a little bit of uh, slack and a little bit of leeway here. But uh, I guess one of the, the main takeaways from our conversations every week, uh, and it seems to be a message that's pretty consistent from you, Andrew, is uh, you do have rights. Uh, you can't, you know, you, and I know you're not supposed to turn down work, but at the same time, uh, there's an expectation that, okay, when you shut your doors on March 17th, I was doing this and I was getting paid this. You should have an expectation, I would think, from what you're telling us, Andrew, that if you're going back to work this week now, that should still apply to you. Yeah, absolutely. You should, uh, if you're getting recalled from a temporary layoff, you have the right to your job back. Now, that being said, in light of COVID-19, there could be some differences with respect to your duties and responsibilities. I mean, based on the fact that companies have to implement social distancing measures and, um, you know, different policies and protocols to ensure individual safety, there could be, you know, some different duties, some different workflow a different office layout, perhaps. So it, it might not be a one-to-one, -one, but substantial pay cuts, 
significant demotions. Those aren't things that people necessarily have to accept. And certainly, I think the point is, you know, you're right. There are companies that generally, genuinely not doing well because of the pandemic and the economic impact it's had on their businesses. And if that's the, that doesn't necessarily change an employee's rights at all. But let's say an employee is sympathetic to the situation and wants to work with the employer and might be willing to take a bit of a pay cut or something like that, um, you know, that's, there's no reason that that should be permanent. If, if it's tied to COVID-19, if it's tied to a, you know, a, a downturn that's temporary, uh, there's no argument uh, an employer can have that, you know, it's necessary that I cut your pay $10 an hour for, until you, you know, we fire you or you quit. There's just no reason for that. If things pick up in four or five months, your pay should go up as well. There's, you know, the, the employer's reaction uh, should be proportionate to the situation they're in as well. So, you know, people do have rights. If you have concerns, you should you should look into what you can do to act on it. But certainly, um, employment law is not out the window because of COVID-19. And as you've told us in past shows, uh, if you do have some sort of an arrangement or come to some sort of an arrangement with your employer about, okay, I'll take that for now, get it in writing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can't stress that enough, you know. Everything that you agree to that deviates from your regular employment terms, so whether it be pay, hours, duties and responsibilities, you want to make it clear in writing that you're only accepting this in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and you're only accepting it on a temporary basis. Um, You know, the concern is if you don't make this clear and your pay is cut or your hours are cut and six months, eight months down the line, you haven't said anything, an employer might have an argument that you implicitly agreed to the new terms and they've now become the terms of your contract. So you want to make it clear in writing that it's only something uh, temporary that you agree to and ideally put a date in place uh, for you and the employer to speak to revisit the issue and see how things are going to look going forward. Uh, email here from Louise, uh, bkelly at 900chml.com, by the way, if you want to pop a question in for uh, for Andrew. Uh, Louise says, I got called back to work. Is it my responsibility or my employer's responsibility to supply personal protection equipment? I guess by she, she means face masks and gloves, I guess, depending on where she doesn't say where she works. Uh, who's, who's, who's supposed to be doing that? It's an interesting question. I mean, the employer has an obligation to ensure the safe workplace. I think the best practice for the employer uh, would be to purchase the PPE themselves um, such that the individuals can come to work. I mean, I suppose if it's something as simple as cheap, cheaper face masks, uh, something like that, an employee could share the cost. But ultimately, that shouldn't be an issue that people are hot. Like, I'm shocked that that is an issue. I mean, if it's as simple as face masks and gloves, things of that nature, I think the employer should be footing the bill and, uh, and uh, certainly, but, but it's an interesting point. I mean, I could see some situations where an employee should, you know, is, is forced to contribute a bit to that, uh, to the PPE. But, um, you know, if, if that person has concerns that there's a standstill because the employer refuses to purchase it, I think, uh, you know, that person should call, potentially call the Ministry of Labor and let them know that there is a safety issue in the workplace. 
Yeah, this goes beyond because I know there are some places, you know, where I guess employees actually have to buy their uniforms, uh, you know, if it's a, some of the fast food places and things of that nature. So, so I, there's a give and take here. But this, as you say, kind of moves it into a different realm. Though this is a, a public safety issue if you're talking about personal protection equipment. Exactly, and to be honest with you, it seems, you know, to me it just seems pretty petty yeah. that such a, you know, that, that that could be an issue at all. I mean, it's not, especially if you have the ability to buy in volume that uh, like most employers do, it's not that expensive to buy gloves and masks. So the time wasted going back and forth, communicating between employees, telling them that they have to purchase the items. I mean, that's, that's time that could be better spent running the business and trying to get back to normal. So if you're an employer, just pay for the mask, pay for the gloves, ensure your employees are safe and, uh, and get back to, you know, running the business and getting things back on track is my opinion on it. With uh, Andrew Goldberg, uh, employment lawyer with uh, San Fuero to Market LLP, uh, here's an interesting twist. This this is one I had not heard of. Uh, uh, companies now are being asked in some situations to pay a portion of the rent for their employees that are working from home. Uh, never heard of that one. Is is there a legal standing for this? Yeah. So there was actually a decision out of Switzerland that kind of prompted this whole issue where the court in Switzerland uh, ruled that a company had to pay part of an individual's rent because that individual is working from home. So the thing to keep in mind is this is out of Switzerland and this would not happen in Ontario, generally speaking, for the for the most part. Uh, You know, the court would not award the employer to pay part of an employee's rent. I mean, in Ontario, you have to keep in mind that as soon as you start working from home and as soon as you have an office space from home, that could be something that impacts your taxes. So if you're working from home and you have been for some time and that you have dedicated space to a home office, I would speak to your accountant and see if there's anything to do with respect to um, labeling that as a, as a, as a work expense they're therefore offsetting your your income uh, tax obligations. So I think that's dealt with in the tax system more than anything, where you could get uh, you know reduced uh, a tax burden at the end of the year. Um, it's also something that could be worked worked out directly between the employer and the employee. If the employer wants to help with your rent as part of your package of compensation, uh, that could be something that's negotiated. But but I certainly do not believe in Ontario that that would be a right. For, of an individual to say, hey, I'm working from home now. I need you to pay part of my rent, please. Because I've been here since March, so I'm not going to get a break on my mortgage then, am I? No, no. <laughs> if, you, if, you do, if you do, let me know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you'll be the first one I call in. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, lots of other stuff here, too. This is an, an interesting time for an awful lot of us. Can an employer legally fire an employee who engages in inappropriate activity outside of the workplace? So that's going to be highly dependent on the situation. I think what, you know, what I, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen in the news lately, the individual, the woman in Central Park who called the police on a, on a black gentleman who asked her to put her dog on the leash. Have you seen this yeah. video? Yeah. So for, for your listeners that have it, there's essentially a woman in Central Park and um, she had her dog off the leash and, and, and a gentleman who is a black gentleman asked her kindly to put the dog on the leash. She freaked out and called the cops on him and told the police that he was, you know, threatening her safety and she felt threatened and, you know, kept 
uttering that he was, you know, an African-American man and during the course of this video was choking her dog and now her dog's been taken away and it's become a whole big ordeal. So it's, it's led to the question, can that woman be fired for her conduct since it was off working hours in, in the park? And, and the answer to that is, is absolutely this person can be fired for that conduct. A, a company has an obligation to protect its reputation. So just because you're off working hours and just because you're at home doesn't mean that your actions on social media or in the public realm can't impact negatively the reputation of the company. So, yes, even though she's in her off hours, she absolutely can be fired. The question more so is, can she be fired without being provided a severance package? Can she be fired for something called just cause? Mm-hmm. So I find I feel like that is, that is the interesting question because at any time someone could be fired for their conduct. It's just whether or not that amounts to just cause, thereby allowing the employer to you know not pay you any severance pay whatsoever. You've raised an interesting part of, uh, of this, too, and I'm glad you touched on the idea about social media because we have heard examples in the news in the last couple of years, haven't we, Andrew, where uh, people may post something on, on some social media form, doesn't much matter, uh, and they get in trouble with their employer from it. It, it. They could have done it on their own computer on their own time, but you're right, they are an employee of that company, and there are certain standards they maintain. And these people, I know I don't know whether or not they ever got compensation. I guess that's something to be negotiated, but the employer is, is keeping an eye on that. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, you know, for, for your listeners that have seen this video of this woman in Central Park, I mean, you know, it, it, it was a racist attack. It, it was also attack on her dog, a, a physical attack on her dog, all captured on video. And the real question is, can you tie this individual back to the company, right? Because it's all about does the company suffer harm? And the higher up you are in a company, the more senior you are, and the and the more easily that you can be tied to the company. So, you know, say, for example, it's very easy to find you on online, on Google, on LinkedIn, and know that you work for a certain company, the more likely that that company's reputation will be impacted negatively. So all of that will be taken into, into account. And social media, definitely. I mean, if somehow the company finds out about it, um, they'd have to see how many people know about it, how many people are tying them to the company. The company can't have people think that, you know, they condone racist activity and animal abuse activity. So, you know, by all means, that that company should, you know, uh, if it feels it's necessary, terminate uh, that individual's employment, which is very scary because, you know, you have to be very careful what you're doing online. But, but I think what surprises me more than anything is just what people do online. And you know, oh, yeah. be mindful that the things you do online could be, Seen by a lot of people, it just shocks me what people do or say sometimes, thinking that it's private when clearly it's not. It's on a public Facebook page. It's on a public Twitter. You know, just be more careful. I think people do need to be more careful. Even though you know, I might theoretically be able to represent you if you're fired. I might be able to get you a severance. I think it just makes more sense to just be slightly more careful with what you're what you're saying and doing in the public realm. Exactly. Good advice, as always. Uh, Andrew Goldberg, employment lawyer and associate at Semfru to Markin LLP. Uh, webpage, employmentlawyer.ca. Get some great advice and uh, uh, get a hold of the guys at uh, Semfru to Markin if you have any questions about your employment situation, too. Andrew, as always, have a great week. We'll talk to you in a few days. Yeah, thank you. And sorry about the technical difficulties. At least it's one thing I can blame working from home on. There you go. <laughs>
Take care. Andrew Goldberg, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, talk about uh, a concern that we had, and we've talked about this uh, at great length over the last couple of days, and it has to do with uh, wearing face masks, of course, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, the discussion, and some would, I guess, call it a debate, uh, really seemed to heat up a couple of days ago when, when Canada's chief medical officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, had this to say. I think for Canadians, thinking of it as I'm protecting you and you're protecting me is a very key concept. We have to gain the trust of the Canadian public and get their buy-in to do uh, all of this. So with that in mind, uh, we've had discussions about this, and a number of businesses have too. Uh, and there is now a possibility of, well, no mask, no service. And some businesses are actually starting to do that. And with that kind of stuff going on and that kind of debate going on, of course, Premier Doug Ford has also said and weighed in on this and simply said, if that's what the business wants to do, they're well within the rights to do that. Well, and now we're getting into the legalities of this, but uh, it seems to me as this is a trend that may actually start to spread. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Powers, MBA, LLB, uh, Associate Professor and the National Academic Director of the Director's Education Program and Governance Essentials Program at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. First, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning, Bill. Happy to be here. Well, let's let's talk about this. Uh, I had to venture out yesterday. I had a dental appointment. I had to find a dentist first. Uh Wear the face mask every place I go. I am amazed at the number of people, doctor, that I see uh, going in and out of establishments, grocery stores, what have you, with no protection at all. Uh, it's mandated in some areas. It's a suggestion here in, in, in our neck of the woods as, as it currently stands right now. Should we be more forceful about this, and should businesses actually go down this road? Well, it's interesting. You know, As you mentioned, some businesses are going down that road. Some are not. Some individuals are practicing the you know with the mask or going around with a mask. Others are not. So there's real, there's no law that says that you have to, but the law is pretty clear on the other side. A business can refuse service to someone who doesn't wear a mask if that's the protocol that they've put in place. And, and what would the, uh, the the rationalization would be public safety, I would think? Huh? Well, not just public safety. They have a legal responsibility to create a safe working environment uh, for their employees. And if that uh, a reasonable accommodation of that is to have people wear a mask, which I think it is, to provide that safe environment, I think uh, you know the, the retailer can refuse entry to someone who will not don a mask. What? I'm surprised this is such a big issue. Does, does it surprise you that some people seem to be resisting this as much as they are? Well, I think people, you know, have been cooped up for so long, and now they get out, and now they're having to jump through hurdles to do things that they would have normally done, uh, you know, normally done on their own. And I can certainly see the, you know, the dissatisfaction, but at the same time. You know, we're in unprecedented times. And this is actually, this something like this, Bill, is not unprecedented. We've had restaurants and, and other service centers where they say, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that like we haven't seen something like this before. People have mentioned that this is, you know, this is uh, going against people's rights. And, you know, there may be an argument there for someone who has a, perhaps a disability where donning a mask might be harmful to them. In those cases, you know, I think a, a smart retailer, a reasonable retailer, will accommodate them. You know, come in before store hours, come in after hours, uh, where we won't make you put on a mask and we'll have one of our employees take you down and help you out. So there are ways to deal with this. Uh, and I think it's totally reasonable given the, the current situation that we find ourselves in. 
Well, and some stores actually, I, I guess, have made those uh, uh, those sorts of allowances. Not so much now, but when the, when the toilet paper rush was going on, and and there were the lineups. This is in the early days, I guess, of the of the shutdown. And a lot of stores would say, "Look, for seniors or, or you know people that are having problems, you guys come in seven o'clock in the morning. The stores are yours. You, you can do what you want. At Nine o'clock when we open the doors, everybody else gets in here. So there there can be, a, a, I guess, an alternative plan if you want to be forward thinking about it. Well, you can, and you know that was recognized. And there are some more vulnerable groups in our society, seniors, to the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's accommodate them. Let's be reasonable about it. So bring them in before store hours. I thought that was, you know, really smart on behalf of the retailers, but also the right, you know, from an ethics point of view, that was the right thing to do, to accommodate those most vulnerable. This is going to have an impact on businesses, and and obviously uh, the work that you're doing and the teaching that you're doing at U of T, uh, we're looking at businesses and the impact that this is going to have. Uh, and, and I hate to use a phrase that has been bandied around so often in the last couple of months, but is, is this idea about personal protection equipment going to be the new normal? Well, certainly, you know, you talk about the universities, most universities, certainly U of T, at the Rotman School, we're planning, a, you know, a virtual fall. There won't be yeah. any students in the classroom, and I think that's what most are planning. I think the new, yeah, the new normal, at least for a period of time, until there's a vaccine or, or until people get a comfort level that, let's face it, Bill, there's never going to be a situation where there is no risk. There will always be some risk, just as there's a risk of catching the flu or catching a cold. So we have to get it down to a manageable level, though, where people feel that they can carry on their normal activities without the, the need for the personal protection equipment. Well, yeah, we have a daughter at U of T right now, actually, who's uh, doing postgrad stuff. And uh, online, of course, everything's online these days. And uh, I have no idea. I mean, I, I'm trying to envision from all the times I was visiting down at the campus there, the great campus, of course, at the U of T, uh, I, to see people on the streets and to see people, you know, congregating once again. It just seems it was such a distant memory now to, to have that sort of thing, with, especially with the student population and with the faculty in places like this. So you, you have to wonder just how long this is going to go on. Well, certainly it's a worry for us. Can we offer the same quality of education online that you can in the classroom? And I think that's debatable. We'll do the best job we can, but my personal view is, no, we can't. The camaraderie, the opportunity to engage with, with others, just the stimulus of getting back and forth in the classroom is uh, is totally different than online. Now, there are certainly tools and ways we can uh, do a better job online, and that's what we're exploring now. So that'll be the trick. Can we... Can we get to the same level, same quality of an educational experience for our students that we online that we can in a classroom? Well, and the discussions I've had with both our daughters is that they've gone through their university education. Uh, and you're absolutely right about that, Doctor. I mean, <laughs> the most gratifying part of their whole university experience was not just sitting in a in a classroom or sitting in a, in a concert or in a, in a, in a hall, you know, a lecture hall. It was the interaction with the profs, you know, the, the back and forth, you know, before, after, and during those classes uh, that you get most information and you can develop that in, in, in off, in insights into sorts of things. And, and that's missing. You just can't really replicate that online to the extent you can face-to-face. No, you can't. And, you know, it's the same on the other side of the room as well for us. That's where it's engaging for us to, you know, to have that opportunity to engage with students and, you know, answer questions. You know, people are much more reserved online, at least so far. The other thing, Bill, is that we do a lot of executive education. That's our director's education program mm-hmm. that you mentioned. And, you know, the average age in that program is, you know, probably 55 to 60. They did not grow up online. I think, <laughs> I think the virtual educational experience will be a lot easier for undergrads who have. But for, for older students, older participants in our programs, this is novel. This is very new, and they're not as comfortable. So to expect that we're going to do a full-day program online, you know, we have to rethink that. It's just too long a period of time to expect those people to be on a computer. 
with uh, Dr. Richard Powers from uh, the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Doctor, how is this pandemic going to have a, a I'm talking long term now, but uh, on, on businesses, especially small businesses. I mean, you know, the big guys, the grocery chains, uh, the, the multi-million dollar operations, uh, I guess we'll find a way and they've, they've got the capital to be able to fall back for a little bit. But I'm, I'm kind of concerned about, you know, the restaurant business, for instance, and some of these other small places uh, that are going to have to make some accommodations for really who knows how long. You know, you, you picked a, a good example. The restaurant hospitality industry has been decimated. Lots of figures out there from, uh, you know, national organizations that suggest that up to 40% of local establishments won't be there after the pandemic. I heard a very telling uh, story the other day. Well, someone who's in the restaurant business and has been uh, their family has been in their family for years and said, you know, if you don't own your building, you're out of business. You just don't know it yet. And that's, I think, is a real issue. The rents that uh, most of these establishments have to pay are considerable. And without any revenue coming in, how long can they hold on without without uh, some assistance? The government is, I think, doing a very good job, the best they can, I guess, with with uh, some assistance for these for these these retailers and in the hospitality industry. But thousands and thousands of jobs as well are dependent on that industry, and they just won't be there when we come out of this. Is uh, this is obviously going to reshape that particular industry? I mean, simply because of the impact that it's going to have, uh, and we say the kind of things that they're going to have to do, whether it's going to be you know wearing masks or whatever the case might be, you have to wonder about the viability of the restaurant industry. I mean, these guys are in pretty short margins to begin with, aren't they? They really are. And as you mentioned, though, the big chains, you know, the pizza pizzas and all those types of places, well, they're still operating, so they do with the takeout anyway, but. Many of the establishments you mentioned, the margins are quite thin. They don't have the room or the backstop to have a prolonged uh, absence of revenue. And we're running into close to three months now. How much longer before the bars and restaurants, the hospitality industry, is allowed to open up? If it doesn't happen soon, you know, I really fear a lot of them will not make it. And that's, uh, that's going to have a significant hit on employment in that industry as well. Well, there's a certain amount of trepidation, and, and I guess with anybody in business, wouldn't it be uh, really, when you look at it this way, Doctor, I mean, change is problematic, and especially if, as I say, if you've put your blood, sweat, and tears into an operation like this, and I know it's kind of an apples and oranges comparison, but I remember, for instance, when the province put the no smoking bylaw in place, uh, a lot of people in that industry were outraged and said, that's going to kill us, nobody's going to come anymore, and uh, now we're going to have to make accommodations, and it, it worked out in the long term, but you don't know, when change happens, you don't know how the public's going to respond do you no you don't and i think uh you know the governments and retailers have an obligation now you know particularly if we're focusing on the hospitality industry again they've talked about opening up you know closing streets to traffic opening up the areas in mm-hmm. front of the bars and restaurants to expand their territory so that they can provide service with a social distancing environment i think we just have let's get on with it let's do it because other than uh, without something without changes like that we are going to see that industry is totally decimated Let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, to get back to come full circle here, about the personal protection equipment and what's happening here. What are you hearing as, as you talk with some of these folks, and especially uh, some of the ones that you're still uh, going back and forth with, uh, whether it's uh, you know on videos or whatever the case might be these days? Uh, the trepidation we talked about, about the consumers, obviously, that's going to be a little nervous. You know, I'm not so sure, even if they open their doors today, I'd want to go into a restaurant not knowing who's going to be you know six feet away from me. How is staff going to be impacted by this, though? I mean, we're talking about the owners themselves, but uh, are the staff going to feel comfortable going back into this environment, having to, as you say, wear this equipment and, and, and basically having to adjust to, to using that all the time? Well, their, their other option is that they don't have a job. So I think yeah. they'll look, they, they will. I, I think they're looking forward to getting back to work. If it means that you have to wear you know, the mask while you're at work, well, so be it. That's an accommodation that they'll have to put up with. 
it's uh, it's better than not having a job. And I think people will come back. I think I think you're right, though. It will take some time. Are you going to jump on an airplane when you're in this capsule for you know three or four hours with with a group of people that you don't know? And you're certainly you know, social distancing on an airplane is kind of a ridiculous uh, notion in the first place. <laughs> you may, you, Bill, you probably recall, as I do, when uh, via rail and, and airplanes used to have those smoking areas. Yeah. And they, they have a glass, you know, a glass partition, basically, as if the smoke was going to stop at the glass partition. <laughs> it would just go around and fill up the whole cabin. Well, that's the same with this COVID-19. You know, type, that type of travel, I think, is still going to be precarious, and people will probably shy away from it. And as you mentioned, people will shy away from initially going back to restaurants and bars. But I think once we get a comfort level that the that the protocols that they put in place are working, and we start to see a decline in the hopes of a vaccine, we'll get back to some whatever the new normal will be. One of the most uh, troubling stories I heard, just a quick sidebar about that, about being on the airplane, was uh, actually one of the medical experts that was on NBC and has been uh, got COVID nineteen, so he was hospitalized. And he got it from a flight. He's, and he says, we took all the precautions, the mask and everybody. He says, for three and a half hours, everybody's breathing the same air. Of course, the virus is going to spread in a situation like that. So, so, But a restaurant is a much more controllable situation. Retail stores the same way. I know we all get frustrated, you know, the six feet back and the lineups to get into the grocery store, et cetera. But if it's what has to be done, uh, I'm, I'm surprised, as I say, that the government's simply, you know, suggesting that we do this. But I'm, I'm getting the the feeling that the, 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 they just have to understand this. A lot of the business understands this. Uh, there's going to be an expense to this, though, certainly. I mean, to put the you know the barriers up, the plexiglass barriers and all this other sort of stuff. But uh, if the consumers are going to be comfortable with that and the staff are going to be comfortable with that, uh, I don't see there's going to be a huge problem moving forward. It's really just a matter of, uh, you know, can we get used to it once we start seeing this on a daily basis? I agree. Uh, you know, you, you sort of alluded to, without saying it, though, this uh, COVID-19 tax or surcharge we've seen a few of those i think that is definitely the wrong way to go there will be some increase in expenses and maybe some of the items on the menu have to to increase to to cover that but to put an actual line you know uh, covid uh, surcharge to try to offset some of the expenses these businesses are going to incur i think that's the wrong message and i think that is would be really uh could be very harmful to a to an establishment's reputation so work it out another way. The costs are minimal, these masks and everything, to have the staff wear, things like that. It does increase costs, no doubt about it, but we should find other ways to manage that. Is there a legitimate concern here about consumer confidence in situations like this? I mean, anybody can open their doors, but if nobody goes through those doors, um, like you say, you're, you're out of business. That's all it comes down to. How long is it going to take for us to get over this and get used to it, to what we need to do now? Well, I think until we find, until we're comfortable that the, the threat or the, the degree of cases certainly starts to go down, that the protocols in place are working, I think we're seeing actions already. You know, the retailers are open, those ones that have uh, storefronts and everything, and you see people lining up, as you said, to go inside. So people are, are, are happy. I, I think people will come back. They're mindful of the protocols. They'll wear their masks and whatever other uh, protection that they feel is necessary. But I think we're slowly, we'll start to slowly see this, uh, this type of activity increase. And hopefully with that, the governments will open up the hospitality industry to similar, to similar uh, protocols as well. I certainly hope it works out sooner than later as well. Uh, thank you so very much for the time today. Great to get your perspective on this. Bill, wonderful to be here. Thank you very All much. Right. Have a wonderful Stay day. healthy. Stay healthy. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Dr. Richard Powers uh, from the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.